0: I'm super excited for class today. I have a nice, nice little topic. I'm excited about my topic.
1: Whoa, 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 Jason, are you trying to kick off class here? It feels yeah. like you're trying to commandeer the class.
0: I am a little bit. You look like a student. Look at you with your backwards hat. You look like a student.
1: <laughs> whoa, teach.
0: Hey. <laughs> hey, yo, teach. What am I in summer school here? What's a
1: going on?
0: what's that character that's my uh italian jersey kid who's got to go to summer school and and
1: doesn't even know it's summer school he doesn't know yeah hey everyone it's wiki university a podcast that dives down the rabbit hole of wikipedia to explore the sum of all human knowledge I'm your host, Kyle Burseth, and as always, I'm joined by WikiU's top student, Jason Nunez. Welcome to fall semester! Put on your helmet and safety harness, because today we're pushing the boundaries of what's socially acceptable as we zip across Wikipedia from the Overton window to Formula One racing. What's your topic today?
0: Oh, man. I'm excited. I'm ex- super excited about my topic. Uh, I've been really getting into uh, more sports recently. You know, when something is taken away from you, you kind of you thirst for it.
1: Yeah, that's crazy. There's no sports going on. so
0: No sports going on for the past, like, three months. And finally, things are coming back, slowly but surely. And one of the first things to come back was F1 racing, which I recently got into about a year ago after watching the netflix documentary i believe it's called drive to survive okay it was like a 10 episode doc on the previous season meaning the 2018 season and then i watched the 2019 season that was cool um by watched i mean caught it here and there i I tried so sometimes they're like racing in japan and it's like the time difference—it's like uh, it starts at like two in the morning, three in the morning, and so it's kind of like difficult to catch those ones. One time I did catch one though at like three in the morning. I just happened to be up with Liz, and then we went to Bob and Edith's.
1: Shout out to Bob and Ediths! No, no, place. no, 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 no. There's no yeah. promo for Bob and Ediths.
0: Yeah, no, you gotta support they, local, baby. I tra- they're not no, a, cor- they're not I a tried corporation. To get
1: them, I tried to get them on board. To sponsor really? the podcast, I said we can set you up with a promo code. You'll sell uh, all sorts of wiki, what's Bob wiki and Edith sell sandwiches. Uh, when you go
0: to Bob and Edith's at any of its four locations in the Northern Virginia area, you you want to just uh, just tell them, just say wiki you and you'll get free coffee.
1: Absolutely. And if, if they don't give it to you, demand to speak to a manager. Yeah. And if that manager does not honor... The promo code. You can burn the building down. That
0: that's yeah. Actually <laughs> you own you own the building and if you choose to burn it down, that is up to you, yes. But if they don't honor the code, you own the building and then yes, you're right, Kyle, you can burn it down if you would like.
1: <laughs> okay.
0: But anyways, I got into it because of the documentary, and then after that I just been in and out of it, and it was one of the first sports to like come back uh and oh and i also started playing um f1 2019 because i have ps4 now this one is i'm doing like career mode and it's very realistic in terms of like what you have to do to the vehicle and know about the vehicle and when and time things out and when to go when to pit when to not when to Mm. all, all these things you know certain purchases that you have to buy for your vehicle um to make it whatever faster oh
1: okay that's kind of cool
0: and it's just a super super fun game it's getting me to know uh f1 better than just watching it
1: yeah it's turned into a gaming podcast
0: yeah man you know this this that's the beauty about this podcast cal you can it can really we can we can mold it because it is a two-party system much like our uh government and um if we work together yeah more better things can happen
1: so, oh, more better things. More better. Exactly. Well, that brings me to my topic pretty nicely. Thank you for setting it up perfectly.
0: Hey, no problem. More better. Hashtag more better.
1: Mine is called the Overton Window. I just found out about this through a friend that uh, posted about it. But anyway, it's a general idea of like pushing ra- radical ideas in order to get a lesser idea. So, like, that's a great maybe, idea. Maybe if you want abortion passed. Maybe you say we should be able to kill three year olds. Yeah. And then people are like, Whoa, whoa, three year olds? Three year olds? No, no. That's unthinkable. And then you're like, what about two year olds,
0: I get, but What about
1: a what about a one month old? And they're like, Okay, you can have that. So that's the Overton window. It's big in politics.
0: That's it about oh, you just found out what the Overton window was? Like there's no
1: Like two weeks ago.
0: I mean, I didn't know what that was, but that idea, I, 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 like. I know of that idea. Like, for instance, the first when you said that, the first thing I thought of was when uh, Black Lives Matter is pushing for, like, uh, what's it called? Uh, ob- obliterating the police. Like, well, that's why compl- this
1: came up. That's what. That's exactly why this came up. Yeah.
0: There's no way they're gonna get rid of the police. That's a yeah. Fact. There's no way no that's going to happen. But right. so the best we can get is to not have money for them to buy fucking tanks and shit. You know,
1: I want my tanks with police.
0: I, in, in fact, I want the tanks and by tanks, I mean like these tanks. I want my police and tank shirts. I need. Ta- no, exposed. I don't.
1: The police are
0: doughy, man.
1: They're not, they're not athletic looking yeah, I know dudes,
0: but-, but maybe it, it gives them the incentive to get better.
1: Every cop should have to just wear the bulletproof vest. no shirt on underneath. I mean honestly, that's a that's a pretty cool look. It's like, it a badass cool look. look. and yeah. honestly,
0: even if you're like this big old dude, I mean you're wearing a vest. it's covering pretty much everything. you're only showing your most attractive features of your upper body, which would be your arms.
1: Yeah, yeah. but if you're crammed in there and you got doughy arms, then you're gonna work out. And also just aside from the
0: vest having like the essentials that they need. Just put on some weight on there, like heavy, make it heavy so that they're walking around with some weight, like a, cause have you seen those weighted like vests? They have like, weighted... there's a
1: guy in my building who he does stairs in the morning, just walking, just like sweating profusely with this weighted vest. He's got a N95 mask on. He's got rubber gloves on. Like he's, it's the only set of stairs in the building but he's go- he's like plotting and just dripping sweat. But I bet sweat. that's a crucial
0: workout just to go upstairs. Like he doesn't oh, yeah. even need a jog or anything. He's just going up and
1: down. I bet I bet he has the firmest quads and ass in the building.
0: Probably. Probably. dude. I got, I got some
1: calves, man. I got some legs. All right, we don't have time to talk about your calves. I'll show you pictures. Jason. I'll show you. I'll send you pictures. Po- let's post do it. Up. A, let's do a calf comparison picture. We'll do a vote I on also, Instagram. Okay. okay, let's do it. Calf it up. Although, although you have For, such this, beautiful tan calves, it's you, it, you have a bit of hard. an advantage. It's hard to beat
0: my calves, man. I'm, I, it's nice. It's nice. They're they're the color. I uh, and more like you said, more about the color. It's got a good shine. Because the way the way my back leg is, the the, the little muscle that I've that I have obtained in that calf area, because of my because of my color, it really gets defined nicely once you stick a little bit of light in there. It really, really yeah, the, the contrast is it's quite beautiful. Oh,
1: I like a well lit calf.
0: I'm gonna start my own I'm gonna start my only fans. It's gonna be a lot of calf stuff.
1: Okay. Can we get to Formula One here? All right. Formula One, also known as F1, is the highest class of international single-seater auto racing sanctioned by the Federation Internationale de Automobile and owned by the Formula One Group. The World Drivers' Championship, which became the FIA Formula One Championship in 1981, has been one of the premier forms of racing around the world since its inaugural season in 1950. Wow, I would have thought Formula One started sooner than 1950. Oh, really? I would have thought a little bit later, actually. Let's see. Okay, that's that's about it. That's all we need,
0: right? It's a car race. Super fun to watch. You got to check out the Netflix documentary. If you like it, you'll
1: love F1. If you don't, fuck off. What's it called again? Drive to Survive. No plugs. No <laughs> plugs on the podcast, Jason. Come on. All right. The Overton window. The Overton window is the range of policies politically acceptable to the mainstream population at a given time. It is also known as the window of discourse. The term is named after Joseph P. Overton who stated that an idea's political viability depends mainly on whether it falls within this range. The term is named after Joseph P. Overton, who stated that an idea's political viability depends mainly on whether it falls within this range, rather than on politicians' individual preferences. According to Overton, the window frames the range of policies that a politician can recommend without appearing too extreme to gain or keep public office, given the climate of public opinion at the time. I think Christine uses this the Overton window on me. A little bit, because... Yeah? Well, I'll get back to it in a second. Uh, Sorry, I didn't mean to say Christine. Whitebones. Yeah, Um, Whitebones. Political commentator Joshua Trevino has postulated that the degrees of acceptance of public ideas are roughly as follows. Unthinkable, radical, acceptable, sensible, popular, and policy. Policy being it's... In law, being a-
0: the least effective <laughs> of all those things.
1: Unthinkable is the most extreme. And that's where you start with a new idea. And then yeah. you want to get to sensible with the desired idea. So Christine, for example, we just started joking about going to Long Beach with her new foldable kayak and kayaking across the ocean to Catalina Island. Joking. And How she's like, it's got to be like, I don't know, 20 miles or something <laughs> on a <foldable laughs> on the ocean, canoe? on a foldable kayak. And she Sorry. she found an article. And this is this is also we were looking at like the coast of Long Beach. And I was like, well, I don't want to I can't kayak anywhere in here. I'm not kayaking on the ocean. Are you nuts? And, you know, because I can't swim, which we've talked about extensively on this podcast. And, and so then I jokingly was like, oh, we could, we could kayak to Catalina, just get our foldable kayak, fold it together and just kayak out there. And so she looks up an article about a couple that tried to do that in their foldable kayak and they had to get rescued by uh, the Coast Guard. Now they did know in advance that this might not happen. So they had like precautions in place. They had the number for the Coast Guard and radios and everything. Gotcha. But then she's like, here's an idea. Let's go to the Channel Islands and bring our kayak and kayak around the Channel Islands. And the Channel Islands are also out in the ocean. And she's like, we'll take a boat to the islands. And I'm like, I don't want to be on the ocean in this foldable (laughs) kayak. But I think I think, and I said this to her. I think it's just to end up back in the marina at Long Beach. She really just wants to kayak in the marina at Long Beach, but she's trying to throw out all these extremes to right. get me to to say, "Well, let, that's doable."
0: Yeah, because then that'd be the 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 the, the South. That'll beach be one would policy. Be sensible. It would be sensible. <laughs> yeah, sensible. <laughs> I don't know, man. This kayak is gonna. Don't let that uh, kayak drive you guys a uh, little nutso.
1: What do you mean drive us
0: nuts? With It seems like a lot uh, revolves around this kayak. Trips with the kayak. You would think it's a child. Hell yeah.
1: All right. Uh, the Overton Window is an approach to identifying the ideas that define the spectrum of acceptability of governmental policies. Politicians can only act within the acceptable range. Shifting the Overton window involves proponents of policies outside the window persuading the public to expand the window. So like gay marriage, I guess. Yep. Proponents of current policies or similar ones within the window seek to convince people that policies outside it should be deemed unacceptable. According to Lehman, who coined the term, I thought Overton came up with the term, but it's this person, Layman the most common misconception is that lawmakers themselves are in the business of shifting the Overton window. That is absolutely false. Lawmakers are actually in the business of detecting where the window is and then moving to be in accordance with it. Hey, that's pretty interesting. And then here's a quote from Noam Chomsky. Do you know who Noam Chomsky is? Uh
0: only by reference in Seinfeld and
1: stuff. Yeah, I don't I don't really know who he is other isn't than he maybe like philo- an like, uh, author isn't he like
0: uh Rush, I want to say Russian, but like uh Yeah, maybe maybe we should go ph- to him next. Definitely a philosopher, definitely written a couple of books that I haven't re- read. Okay, cool. Has he even read his own books? That's what I want to know. More like Noam Blonsky. And that's beans for you. <laughs> anytime, anytime I say something that you don't like, just be like, "And that's beans for you." But doing it like an angry way, and just be, like, "Yeah, that's beans for you." But then I'm, then I'll be like, "That's beans for you." No, it's it's gonna be ah, beans again.
1: <laughs> beans
0: for dinner, not
1: again. <laughs> All right. In uh, 1998, Noam Chomsky said. The smart way to keep people passive and obedient is to strictly limit the spectrum of acceptable opinion, but allow very lively debate within that spectrum, even encourage the more critical and dissident views. That gives people the sense that there's free thinking going on, while all the time the presuppositions of the system are being reinforced by the limits put on the range of the debate all right and that's the overton window we're out of articles so we could go to noam chomsky i think this noam chomsky's guys kind of knows what he's talking about can i be honest all right noam chomsky is an american linguist philosopher cognitive scientist historian social critic and political activist wow a lot of slashes right pick a lane and influencer. Whoa, he's an influencer? Sometimes called the father of modern linguistics, Chomsky, that's a fun name to say. Chomsky is also a major figure in analytical philosophy and one of the founders of the field of cognitive science. He holds a joint appointment as Institute Professor Emeritus at MIT and laureate professor at University of Arizona and is author of more than 100 books, Jason. 100 books on topics such as linguistics, war, politics, mass media. Ideologically, he aligns with Uh, anarcho-syndicalism. Ideologically, he aligns with anarcho-syndicalism and libertarian socialism.
0: And what's that first one again? You don't have to
1: say it again. Please don't say it again. Just click Anarcho-syndicalism. on Anarcho-syndicalism. I don't know what it is. We can go to it. Do you want yeah, to go it? to it? Yeah. All right. We're already off of Noam Chomsky. Here we go. Anarcho-syndicalism is a political philosophy and anarchist school of thought that views revolutionary industrial unionism or syndicalism as a method for workers in capitalist society to gain control of an economy and thus control influence in broader society. The end goal of syndicalism is to abolish the wage system regarding it as wage slavery. Anarcho-syndicalist theory therefore generally focuses on the labor movement. So like want- wanting control
0: of keeping the working class working? Right, well, let me read a little more.
1: The basic principles of anarcho-syndicalism are solidarity, direct action, action undertaken without the intervention of third parties such as politicians, bureaucrats, and arbitrators, and direct democracy or workers' self-management anarcho-syndicalists believe their economic theories constitute a strategy for facilitating worker self-activity and creating an alternative cooperative economic system with democratic values and production that is centered on meeting human needs. I mean, that sounds great in an ideal world. I don't know if that that could happen. Right, that sounds to me
0: like like they don't want any micromanaging going on. Like, let these...
1: But if... If everyone's free to just work and do what they want, that is anarchy. I mean, the who's fact that you're working. This thing? I
0: mean, the fact that you're working—how is that anarchy? The fact that you're doing a job for money in exchange for money—that's anarchy.
1: Well, I guess they're saying is there's no one in charge. I don't know.
0: Like any, oh, like meaning like anybody can just open up shop. There's you know, if there's one blacksmith anyone can be a blacksmith and post up next to that blacksmith and it depends whoever gets whoever does better i don't know why he chose blacksmith but you know what i mean like just uh,
1: (laughs) blacksmiths are coming back baby they're
0: coming back dude i'm telling you man
1: i've heard there's tons of blacksmiths setting up shop in williamsburg brooklyn
0: yeah yeah there's uh (laughs) they're just sword makings back everything's back it's all like artisanal sword making
1: Oh, yeah, artisanal sword-making, artisanal blacksmithing. Get the blacksmiths out of the factory and working with their hands again, you know? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Here's another belief. They view the primary purpose of the state as being the defense of private property in the forms of capital goods, and therefore of economic, social, and political privilege. In maintaining this status quo, the state denies most of its citizens the ability to enjoy material independence and social autonomy that springs from it. I don't really understand this at all. Do you?
0: What I thought was like no like big boss corporation kind of thing overlooking, you know, like kind of like how companies buy all other companies and they're basically the conglomerates of of everything else uh, yeah i I, th- I was taking it in in such a way where it's like
1: none of that it's more everybody i think you're on to it um it is centered on the this is this i think this will help clear it up it is centered on the idea that power corrupts and any hierarchy that cannot be ethically justified must either be dismantled Or replaced by decentralized egalitarian control.
0: I would love to get on board with all. I would love to get on board with Chomsky, but uh, I got too much money in the stocks right now, (laughs) Brad.
1: You're you're like capitalist pig, capitalist pig. (laughs) Yep,
0: I bought in, baby. I bought in.
1: I have a funny feeling with his hundred books and his MIT tenureship and laureate title at wherever else. He's kind of got a lot of power and money. (laughs) Right. Don't you think? Like, I wonder what his net worth is. I mean, yeah, is. he's an
0: influencer at this I point. I
1: bet he's worth $20 million. That's yeah. my
0: guess. I mean, him and Jenna Marbles are influencers.
1: Okay, so there's post-World War II era. There's contemporary times. There's green syndicalism, theory and politics, critical, uh, criticism, in re- and we'll just skip that one, and in pop culture
0: maybe some pop culture?
1: You want to go to in pop culture?
0: Yeah, let's get out of the um, these dense subjects.
1: Ooh, this looks we could go to a fun subject after this. Yeah, in pop good. culture, the 1975 film Monty Python and the Holy Grail makes okay. reference to anarcho-syndicalism. King Arthur becomes frustrated by a character named Dennis's explanation of the anarcho-syndicalist commune in which he lives a situation exasperated
2: Ooh. how'd you do how'd you do good lady i am arthur king of the britons whose castle is that king of the who the britons who are the britons well we all are we are all britons and i am your king know we had a king i thought we were an autonomous collective you're fooling yourself we're living in a dictatorship a self perpetuating autocracy in which the working classes. Oh, there get... you go, bringing class into it again. That's what it's all about. If only people would please. Be like... Please, good people, I am in haste. Who lives in that castle? No one lives there. Then who is your lord? We don't have a lord. What? I told you. We're an anarcho syndicalist commune. We take it in turns to act as a sort of executive officer for the week. Yes. But all the decisions of that officer have to be ratified at a special bi-weekly meeting. Yes, I see. By a simple majority in the case of purely internal affairs. Be quiet! But by a two-thirds majority in the case of more Be major- quiet! I order you to be quiet! Order? Who does he think he is? I'm your king. Well, I didn't vote for you. You don't vote for kings. Well, how'd you become king, then? The Lady of the Lake her arm clad in the purest shimmering Samite, held aloft Excalibur from the bosom of the water, signifying by divine providence that I, Arthur, was to carry Excalibur. That is why I'm your king. Listen, strange women lying in ponds distributing swords is no basis for a system of government. Supreme executive power derives from a mandate from the masses, not from some... Vastical aquatic ceremony? Be quiet. Oh, but You can't expect to wield supreme executive power just because some watery tart threw a sword at you. Shut up! Oh, but if I went round saying I was an emperor just because some moistened bint had lobbed a scimitar at me, they'd put me away. Shut up, will you? Shut up! Oh. Ah, now we see the violence inherent in the system. Shut up! Oh. Come and see the violence inherent in the system. Help, help, I'm being repressed, bloody peasant. Oh, what a giveaway. Did you hear that? Did you hear that, eh?
0: That's what I'm on about. See- A classic. What is your favorite uh, Mon- Mon- Monty- Montez Python movie?
1: It's this. This or The Life of Brian.
0: Yeah, Life of Brian's good too.
1: I used to do landscaping and we'd listen to the radio and the morning show always ended with the song at the end of Life of Brian.
2: Always look on the bright side of life. Always look on the light side mm-hmm. of life. And my friend
1: and I, who I worked with, we would sing it along with the radio, to... like every day. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Whistle along and everything. What's your favorite?
0: Uh, Falling Towers.
1: I don't know. I haven't seen that.
0: Isn't, that. isn't that like that show that that guy was in? Faulty Towers?
1: F- I don't know.
0: You haven't heard of that show? It's, Why would it's... you
1: ask me what my favorite Monty Python movie is, and then answer your own question with a TV show?
0: Because I thought, honestly, I got uh, mixed up because I was thinking of Mel Brooks uh, movies. <laughs> 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 so you've never seen any Monty Python movies? No, I have seen the Monty Python, but they're like they're they're good, but they're not they don't stick out to me either way. Uh, uh, Albert, Bro- Not Albert Brooks. Mel Brooks. Uh, Mel Brooks it's,
1: the Mel Brooks movies are so good, you don't know his name. Okay, Monty Python and the Holy Grail is a 1975 British comedy film reflecting the Arthurian legend written and performed by the Monty Python comedy group Chapman, Cleese, Gilman, Idol, Jones, and Palin directed by Gilman and Jones. It was conceived during the hiatus between the third and fourth series of their BBC television show, um, Monty Python's Flying Circus. While the group's first film, and now for something completely different, was a compilation of sketches from the first two television series, Holy Grail is a new story that parodies the legend of King Arthur's quest for the Holy Grail. 30 years later, Idol used the film as the basis for the musical lot. Wow. They really are milking their different things multiple times. They use the yeah. TV show to make a movie out of it, and then they use this to make a musical. I mean, some would say pr- a smart move, right? Oh, very smart move. If you can just... Repurpose that intellectual property.
0: Why, yeah. Why waste time and creative juices to redo something else when you got you got it right there. You got the blueprint right there. Clean it up a little bit. Make it look nice. Don't make something new. I feel like they're thinking in the same way we're thinking where it's like, yeah, our show's great, but a movie is going to hit people differently, and you're going to get a different audience from movies. Yeah. It's just a different thing. And maybe the people from the show will obviously come to see the movie, but then other people will be attracted to the movie because- Again, a movie is a movie is a movie. It's an hour and a half to two hour commitment. Whereas a show is a bit of a commitment. A
1: sketch is is a three minute commitment. Right. So, Monty Python and the Holy Grail grossed more than any other British film exhibited in the U.S. in 1975. In the U.S., it was selected as the second best comedy of all time in the ABC special Best in Film, The Greatest Movies of Our Time. I wonder when that came out. In the U.K., readers of Total Film Magazine in 2000 ranked it the fifth greatest comedy film of all time. A similar poll of Channel 4 viewers in 2006 placed it sixth.
0: I like how there was a magazine that was called Total Film. (laughs) 100% chance does not exist anymore. (laughs) A magazine. Yeah, I want to read up on the latest movies, like in a a subscription. All right,
1: Total Film is a British film magazine published 13 times a year, uh, monthly as well as a summer issue added every year.
0: Okay, for a second I was like, wait, does Britain have like 13 months that I don't know of?
1: They're on the 13-month cycle. calendar. Yeah. The magazine was launched in 1997 and offers cinema, DVD, and Blu-ray news reviews and features. Total Film is available both in print and interactive iPad editions. Ooh, still,
0: okay, still. In it's 2000- going strong.
1: <laughs> Maybe. Let's see. Uh- in 2014, it was announced online that Total Film's website would be merging with Game Radar's website, and all Total Film content would now be located on the Game Radar website. Do you want to go to Game Radar? Aren't yeah. we trying to get to uh, Formula One and you were talking video about games. video games? Yeah, they have a
0: video game. There's a video game for anything. I mean, Home Alone had a video game. So we're...
1: Uh, That was ranked top six video games of all time.
0: Was it really? The first one on Game Boy? No, Uh,
1: not a chance. (laughs) I I
0: played it. I used to play it on Game Boy. I remember that game.
1: Was it just fighting the robbers? Yeah, it it was doing it. Fighting Daniel Stern and Jones like
0: his gun was a little slingshot and you had to do you had to do little things like little little you know, hit certain buttons in certain places of the house to set the trap.
1: Get a tarantula out. Throw some paint yeah. cans. It was
0: all like, um, it was all like profile view. You know, like a cut, like a house cut in half, and you just see what's going on. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, like that.
1: I'll tell you what, Home Alone—that's a movie that stands up. Uh, yeah, the stands the test of time. It really, do, I mean, it really does. Uh, White bones and I maybe watched it last Christmas or the Christmas before, not Christmas, but in that time, you know, when it's playing everywhere. One of the best parts of it that made me laugh so hard is Joe Pesci's fake cursing, where he's just gone, why that little fucker, 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 I'm gonna take his little head and fuck a fucker, fucker, and he's just, he's just like <laughs> mumbling fake curse words. That. Did you
0: hear <laughs> the story though, like why he did that? Like that was his add-on because he's so used to all these movies where he's a gangster and he can say whatever the fuck he wants. So he's just saying the F word here and there, but they told him obviously, Hey, this is a G movie parents, blah, blah. And so he was like, (laughs) well, I mean, it just comes out. So he's just decided to like say the, yeah, instead of saying fuck, he's a frig, frig, just kind of hold it in. And, and it's so funny. Yeah.
1: (laughs) All right. A a video game game is an electronic (laughs) game that involves interaction (laughs) with the user interface. With a user interface to generate visual feedback on a one or two or one or wait (laughs) on a two or three dimensional video display device, such as a touchscreen VR headset or monitor TV set. Since the 1980s, video games have become an increasingly important part of the entertainment industry and whether they are also a form of art is a matter of dispute. Suck that, Jason. Is it an art? I
0: won't suck it, bro. It is an art. It's disputable. That's not.
1: All right, so this is obviously a, a big article. There's history. Do you want to go to theory? Yeah. All right, theory. Although departments of computer science have been studying the technical aspects of video games for years, theories that examine games as an artistic medium are relatively recent developments in the humanities. The most visible schools in this emerging field are ludology and narratology. Narrativists (laughs) approach video games in the context of what Janet Murray calls cyber drama. That is to say, their major concern is with video games as a storytelling medium, one that arises out of interactive fiction. Murray puts video games in the context of the of the holodeck, a fictional piece of technology from Star Trek, arguing for the video game as a medium in which the player is allowed to become another person and to act out in another world. This image of video games received early widespread popular support and forms the basis of films such as Tron and The Last Starfighter. Ludologists... Luna break sharply and radically from this idea. They argue that a video game is first and foremost a game, which must be understood in terms of its rules, interface, and the concept of play that it deploys. Uh, some dude argues that although games, or lady, although games certainly have plots, characters, and aspects of traditional narratives, these aspects are incidental to gameplay. For example, this dude or lady is critical of the widespread attention that narratives have given to the heroine of the game, Tomb Raider, saying that, quote-unquote, the dimensions of Laura Croft's body already analyzed to death by film theorists are irrelevant to me as a player because a different-looking body would not make me play differently. When I play, I don't even see her body. What?! but see through it and past it. Simply put, (laughs) thank God. Yeah, I was hoping. Ludologists reject traditional theories of art because they claim that the artistic and socially relevant qualities of a video game are primarily determined by the underlying set of rules, demands, and expectations imposed on the player. Ooh, rules, demands, and expectations. I think Noam Chomsky would argue... That those need to be out of the game, and it needs to get back to the art of it. But I think I
0: I would argue that for art to keep going moving forward, you need constructs like that, like rules. I think it's it would be constraints. Constraints, I should say. Yes. Yeah. Right. You need rules because you need to know you need to have the line in order to cross it. And so if you don't know where that line is, I mean you're 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 not making art. So I would argue that his having those things in place the, the 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 aspect of the the limitations that you have because that because it is a game is what makes it art though.
1: You could argue that creating the rules demands and expectations is an art unto itself. Yes. Like creating rules that are entertaining but also guide the gameplay, like right. that's an art. Yeah. What you said about constraints if you think of like an artist being hired or an artist being commissioned to create an artwork, they might have a client that says, hey, we need uh, something made out of metal. It's got to be huge and giant. Like, that's a constraint right, right. there. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I'm uh, I'm not a ludologist. Ludo. All right, do you want to go to genres and see if we can get to uh, racing games? I, have, I mean, yeah, I think it's
0: got to be one of the most... What's the fastest you've driven real quick?
1: I think a hundred and twenty, a hundred and eighteen, around there. Nice, yeah.
0: I'm, I've been. To, it was too fast. I've been to like one twenty, 120, yeah, one twenty-five. I don't think I hit one thirty, but.
1: I might have hit one thirty. I can't remember. It was like it was like three in the morning, empty highway. Same. Yep. And I knew the road yep. like I really four ninety five
0: interstate four ninety five. What about you? What highway?
1: The route one in Delaware, but it, I knew like this one little stretch. I could really get it going. It was a straight shot. And uh, and at that time in the morning, there's probably not many people on there. But God, when you get up to like whatever the max I hit, it might have been about 125 as well. Um when you drop down to 100, you're like, I'm going slow. Yeah, I'm like, who's driving? Grandma's so- driving? What the?
2: <laughs> yeah, exactly.
0: Oh, oh, my God, yeah. No, when you go over 100, and then you go back to just a little bit under 100, you're just like, ugh, it, this is, and then
1: you hit 55? But I know, and then, well, then I had to, like, take the off-ramp and, and literally come to a stop, and it was like, I can't believe I'm at rest yeah <laughs> this, this, this is, but it was what but is how this? fun was
0: that how fun was it going 100 very
1: fun and so it was a honda fun. civic i so can't uh, like a 2000 honda civic yeah. not a fast car yeah yeah but uh i can't even imagine being in a formula one car all right we that don't need to get over... on formula one yet
2: but still. we're not on
1: formula one no yeah. no shut it down close. shut we're it edging. down nice try Classic. nice try all right I'm going to video game genres, but then there's a main article called video game genre. So I'm going to click on that. So now we're on video game genre. Obviously, a video game genre is a classification assigned to a video game based primarily on its gameplay rather than visual or narrative features. A video game genre is normally defined by a set of gameplay challenges, maybe an art, considered independently of setting or game world content unlike works of fiction that are expressed through other media such as films or book. For example, a shooter game is still a shooter game regardless of where it takes place. As long as you're shooting someone, bam, bam, you got it. Hell yeah. Like film genres, the names of video game genres have come about generally as a common understanding between the audience and the producers. Descriptive names of genres take into account the goals of the game, the protagonist, and even the perspective offered to the player. For example, a first-person shooter game is a game that is played from a first-person perspective and involves the practice of shooting. Whereas a shooter game is a, game, is a genre name, first-person shooter and third-person shooter are common sub-genres of the, of the shooter genre. School shooting games are drastic. Oh, that's not a genre. I'm making that up. I was like, "What the <laughs> <No."> fuck?" <laughs> oh, <geez. laughs> I gotta keep you on your toes, there, Jason. I gotta make sure you're paying attention. It looks like you're scrolling through your phone. No, I'm uh, uh picking
0: my hand because I did some heavy lifting today, bro. <laughs> all
1: right, all right, all right. Let's.
0: <laughs> it did. Now that I see it, it did look like I'm just on my phone, but I'm actually just <laughs> picking calluses. <laughs>
1: all right this is this is a fun one for you i bet Ooh. the target audience underlying theme or purpose of a game are sometimes used as a genre identifier such as with christian game that's your favorite christian, christian games. games yeah you just go around and help people you help yeah. prostitutes cross the street and stuff yeah yeah prostitutes cross the street yeah jesus
0: hung out with prostitutes man yeah he raged i heard he raged back in the day
1: Oh, yeah. So uh, there's a table here of the top Christian games. It's called Grand Theft Jesus. And... <laughs> it's just Jesus stealing souls and going to heaven with it. <laughs> the devil tries to steal the souls yeah. and Jesus gets them back. Yeah. It's a good game. Can, I, I'm kind of curious about Christian games because, like... What is the consequence? Since you die and go to hell in those games?
0: No, I think. Well, the oh, like in those games,
1: I mm,
0: yeah, I don't know. But it's definitely we should have known there was. Man, we got to get into the we. This is a Christian podcast now. We got to get into the community, bro, dude. The Christian community is so big, so amen. Big, that we just need it. We need the in and just like that. Preach. Think about how shit and you know you know for a fact those uh Christian video games. Suck. You know that oh, for a fact. Oh, terrible. You know but guess what? You also know that they're making money. They're
1: making mad money. Yo, why do you think there's an Old Testament and a New Testament? Because someone needed to make some more money. Yeah, you got to make the sequel to the old. And they're like, yo, the Old Testament, ever since this printing press got made, is cranking out. We need another Testament. We need an- the people want it. John, Paul, get on it. And they were like, all right, all right, we'll crank out a new testament.
0: It's what the it's what the people want. You know, at first when the when the the Old Testament came out, it was unspeakable to even think of a of a sequel, you know, but as time goes on No, we can't we can't ruin
1: a classic. Producers got involved.
0: <laughs> Producers got involved for sure. Someone
1: bought the rights to the Old Testament, and then they, they were like, all right, finally, we can make this sequel.
0: Passion of the Christ? You know they're making a sequel. No joke. Three days after. Easter Sunday, baby. Jesus back in action.
1: Ooh, Mel Gibson joint. Anyway, so let's keep on going with games. So I could take a quick tangent to Christian games, but I see we could just keep plowing ahead because I yeah, see Christian games sound boring. I know. I just want to trash them under uh, popularity. There's a list of the game genres by popularity. Big surprise. Christian did not make the list. Maybe Christian is a subgenre, like an action Christian or a fighting Christian game. Action Christian. I love a fighting Christian game where there's like just Christians getting punched in the face as they approach people with flyers. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Hey, that's a game i can get on board with yeah yeah you just take, <laughs> take the clipboard a- and break it on their head it's sort of like a mortal hey combat. will you
1: join our church finish him <laughs> yeah, just, the rest of the game is you walking into church getting
0: baptized yeah yeah the g- yeah you lose the game if you get baptized
1: <laughs> all right so there's a table of popularity and i see racing game here so i'm gonna go to racing or racing genre The racing video game genre is the genre of video games either in the first-person or third-person perspective in which the player partakes in a racing competition. Would you like to partake in a racing competition with any type of land, water, air, or space vehicles? Oh, space racing. It's just the Russians and the U.S. (laughs) <laughs> trying to build a rocket. Oh, God. Go to Sputnik. <laughs> that would be kind of a fun game. They're, like, shooting monkeys and dogs initially, and then... Wait, did they send a dog up there? Yeah, they sent it. I think they sent a dog into Who, space. Who, were they? Ah, good question. I feel like someone sent a dog into space. There was definitely a chimpanzee definitely first, a chimpanzee, I think. But I don't know about a dog. No, I think, I think the Russians sent a dog into space initially. Hmm. That's crazy. I don't know. All right. Oh, they may be based on anything from real-world racing leagues, which you've been taking part in, Mm -hmm. to entirely fantastical settings. In general, they can be distributed along a spectrum anywhere between hardcore simulations, yikes, and simpler arcade racing games. Racing games may also fall under the category of sports games. Uh, Let's just talk about the first game, 1973, Atari released Space Race. An arcade video game where players control spaceships that race against opposing ships while avoiding comets and meteors. It is a competitive two-player game controlled using a two-way joystick and features black and white graphics. All right, let's go to 2000s here. Okay. Cuz I think I see it. Maybe. Maybe you I don't sn- know enough about F1. I sniff it. I'm sniff <laughs> I'm sniffing hard here, Jason. What is uh, Formula One's racing league called? Is it the Grand Prix? Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, the Grand Prix, yeah. I think we can get there. So uh, there is a wide gamut of driving games ranging from simple action arcade racers like Mario Kart Double Dash for GameCube and Nicktoon racers to ultra-realistic simulators like Grand Prix Legends, iRacing Virtual Grand Prix Live for speed, Netcar, car, blah, blah, blah. Let's go to Grand Prix Legends. Grand Prix Legends is a computer racing simulator developed by Papyrus Design Group and published in 1998. Inspired by the 1966 film Grand Prix, the developers chose to base the game on the 1967 Formula One Grand Prix season because during that period, tracks were narrow and lined with trees, houses, and other elements that in a video game can serve as backgrounds to enhance the sensation of speed. Mm -hmm. Ah. Yes. It's weird that there's not a link to Formula One or F1. Well, do you want to go to the movie Grand Prix... Or do you want to go to the 1967 Grand Prix season? I'm more interested in the 1967 yeah, Grand same. Prix season. I'm more season. interested in what
0: happened then. Yeah.
1: Okay. The 1967 Formula One season was the 21st season of FIA Formula One motor racing. It featured the 1967 World Championship of Drivers and the 1967 International Cup, blah, blah, blah. Uh, Season summary. This is what I want. At the Dutch Grand Prix, Lotus unveiled the new Ford-sponsored Cosworth DFV engine, which was one of the outstanding racing engines of the time, winning 155 Grand Prix Le Mans uh, and Indianapolis. Although Jim Clark won four races, Denny Hulme took the title by virtue of his greater consistency Whoa! Two drivers died in Formula One related events in 1967. Ferrari driver Lorenzo Baldini. Oh wait, Lorenzo Bandini. He was he was big in the movie Ford versus Ferrari. Wait, so Ford
0: versus Ferrari? It was about Formula One? I didn't know that. I thought it was.
1: I don't know because the cars looked different back then. So okay, I, I believe. Right, 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 right. Well, it says it says um, Le Mans. So yeah, I. And that's what um, Ford versus Ferrari was. That was the um, 24 hours at Le Mans. So I assume that's Formula One. Mm. I think it's just the cars have changed so much over time. So Mm -hmm. two drivers died in Formula One-related events in 1967. Ferrari driver who was in Ford versus Ferrari, uh, Lorenzo Bandini, died in a fiery accident during the Monaco Grand Prix on the 10th of May. While running second behind Hulme's Barbham BT20 on lap 82, Bandini lost control of his Ferrari 312 when he clipped a guardrail going into the Harbor Chicane. He went into an erratic skid before hitting a light pole and overturning. When the Ferrari Then hit the trackside straw bales. Its fuel tank exploded into flames with Bandini trapped underneath. Suffering burns to more than 70% of his body. Bandini died in the hospital three days later. I can't believe he survived for three days.
0: I played F1 for three hours, and I only finished one race. And it was only... Fifteen laps because every time I started, within three laps I crash. <laughs> oh my and, God, dude, it's so difficult. You can't like hit anything. But yeah, that, I'm just like, holy shit, the, the amount of the speed that they're going. Andy's doing what se- seventy laps?
1: They were on lap eighty-two of one hundred on Jesus, this. Yeah, yeah, it's crazy. Uh, so the other driver that died, boy, we've been doing a lot of uh, dead. British sports heroes on this show lately. British driver Bob Anderson died. I think. I think Tom Simpson also died in 1967. Did he not? Huh. This was ni- the 1967 season. Anyway, British driver Bob Anderson died on the 27th of August during a test at Silverstone. Anderson slid off the track in wet conditions and hit a marshal's post, suffering serious chest and neck injuries. He later died in the nearby Northampton General Hospital. All right, Jason, Jesus. we made it to Formula One. Hey, Formula One, baby.
0: F1, F F-Me, F-1, baby. Got to check it out.
1: All right. Um, well, let's just take it from the top then. I see a couple interesting things right in front of me here. Formula One is the highest class of international single-seater auto racing sanctioned by the um, federation that we talked about. It began in 1950. The word formula in the name refers to the set of rules, which could be an art, to which all participants' cars must conform. A Formula One season consists of a series of races known as Grand Prix, French for Grand Prizes or Great Prizes, which take place worldwide on purpose-built circuits and on public roads. I think that's one of the coolest parts is that it's a worldwide sport. They bring these cars all over the place, and they're like, we should have it on public streets too. I remember it came to Baltimore when I lived in D.C. Whoa, really? That's awesome. Yeah, it must have been about like 2010 or around there. All right. The results of each race are evaluated using a point system to determine two annual world championships, one for the drivers and the other for the constructors. Drivers must hold valid super licenses. The highest class of racing license issued by the FIA. That's what I need to get. I need to get a super license. Get a suit. You know, in the, I keep bringing it up because this is my only frame of reference, but the movie Ford versus Ferrari, these guys are driving around on like the main roads in their regular sports cars and they're driving like maniacs. Yeah. But they got super licenses, so they're probably like, "This is nothing." Woo. Exactly.
0: It's like, officer, here's my uh, super license. Thank you. <laughs>
1: Have you ever even seen one of these? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, sir, this is not a valid license. Actually, it's a super license.
0: Yeah, uh, it's actually like two driver's licenses in one. So I can drive. <laughs> I can drive this car and your car. Your car is mine now.
1: All right, Formula 1 cars are the fastest regulated road course racing cars in the world, owing to very high cornering speeds achieved through the generation of large amounts of aerodynamic downforce. The cars underwent major changes in 2017, allowing wider front and rear wings and wider tires, resulting in peak cornering forces near 6.5 lateral G. 6.5G's On the cornering, Jesus. And top speeds of up to approximately 230 miles per hour. As of 2019, the hybrid engines are limited in performance to a maximum of 15,000 RPM. I didn't know they were using hybrids. That's kind of cool. The cars are very dependent on electronics and aerodynamic suspension and tires. Traction control and other driving aids have been banned since 2008. No, we don't want you sticking to the track. Yeah, like traction. No treads. No treads whatsoever. If I see any fucking tread <laughs> on that wheel,
0: goddammit, you're out of this you're race. You're out of here. <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: In fact, you've every, everybody Vaseline up your wheels. Everybody take also, the Vaseline me out. Also, give your steering wheel. Right. Yeah. Put Vaseline <laughs> on the steering wheel. Insane.
1: While Europe is the sport's traditional base, the championship operates globally with 11 of the 21 races in the 2019 season taking place outside Europe, with the annual cost of running a mid-tier team, designing, building, and maintaining cars, pay, transport, being $120 million per year. Its financial and political battles are widely reported. Its high profile and popularity have created a major merchandising Uh, environment which has resulted in large investments from sponsors and budgets in the hundreds of millions for the constructors and then uh, oh so they're adding a uh, salary cap for each team of 145 million starting in 2021 i kind of have a little problem with that what's up with that are you saying that's too much or not enough
0: you know, my, 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 my capitalist brain wants to be like, uh, hey, man, you got the money. Go for it. Blow your engine out.
1: Yeah, but, well, it's to ensure fair competition and sustainable development for the sport. Ugh, fair competition.
0: So not competition.
1: Here's the interesting thing about this sport. With, like, the NBA, you have small market teams and big market teams, and they really realistically can't compete against each other. The small market teams need to figure out ways to, like, build their teams in ways that it really—they have trouble getting a star, you know? Like, LeBron James doesn't go to the Minnesota Timberwolves, whereas Formula One, it's just a bunch of billionaires investing in these teams, and they don't have a central location, per se, so that's taken yeah. out of the equation. So that's not like a small market versus a large market. The audience is the same wherever they go. That's yeah, the market is
0: the world, and they have a good chunk of it.
1: Right. There's any number of options we could go to here, Jason. There's history, technological developments. That sounds a little uh, boring. Political disputes. No. Um, I am curious about racing and strategy. You want to go to that?
0: Sure. Racing and strategy. I love me a good strategy. That's what I haven't learned yet on F1 2019 uh, for the PS4. I thought you were going to say in life. (laughs) No, no, no. I got that down pat.
1: Okay. Well, (laughs) maybe you'll get something from the racing and strategy section of Wikipedia here. A Formula One Grand Prix event spans a weekend. It begins with two free practice sessions on Friday, except in Monaco, where Friday practice sessions are moved to Thursday. Fun fact and one free practice on Saturday. Additional drivers, commonly known as third drivers, are allowed to run on Fridays, but only two cars may be used per term, requiring a race driver to give up his seat. A qualifying session is held after the last free practice session. This session determines the starting order for the race on Sunday. That told me nothing about strategy. Yeah, I guess, uh, I mean, strategy... I I think because
0: don't the practice races configure their starting places, I
1: think? Yeah, the times they're running in practice determine their starting races. Okay, here we go. Here's the race. There's another section called race. The race begins with a warm-up lap after which the cars assemble on the starting grid in the order they qualify. This lap is often referred to as the formation lap, as the cars lap in formation with no overtaking, although a driver who makes a mistake may regain lost ground provided they have fallen to the back of the field. The warm-up lap allows drivers to check the condition of the track and their car, gives the tires a chance to warm up to increase traction, and also gives the pit crews time to clear themselves and their equipment from the grid. Take a dump. Once the cars have formed on the grid after the medical car positions itself behind the pack, a light system above the track indicates the start of the race. Five red lights are illuminated at intervals of one second there, then extinguished simultaneously after an unspecified time, typically less than three seconds, to signal the start of the race. The start procedure may be abandoned if a driver stalls on the grid. Oh, what a nightmare. Can't even make it into the race. Signaled by raising his arm, uh, I need a jump. If this happens, the procedure restarts. A new formation in the event of a serious accident or dangerous conditions with the original start voided. Under normal circumstances, the winner of the race is the first driver to cross the finish line, having completed a set number of laps. Race race officials may end the race early due to unsafe conditions such as extreme rainfall, and it must finish within two hours, although races are only likely to last this long in the case of extreme weather or if the safety car is deployed during the race. The race length was standardized to the current 190 miles in 1989. I kind of like when there's not a standard distance because then it's just like, well, this is a longer one. This is a shorter one. It's kind of interesting to me. Oh, so like, meaning for each track, there's no like, it's got to be
0: set at 200. Yeah, it's whatever. a,
1: well, no, miles. they do now. Now it's a standard well, 190 now. miles. Yeah. No,
0: you're right. I totally like the other way better <clears throat> where it's just kind of like, look, this place is, you know, that's just how it's built. Like you got to train for that kind of mileage and stuff.
1: Yeah. Throughout the race, drivers may make pit stops to change tires and repair damage. Different teams and drivers employ different pit stop strategies. Here you go. In order to maximize their car's potential, three dry tire compounds With different durability and adhesion characteristics are available to drivers. Over the course of a race, drivers must use two of the three available compounds. Whoa, so uh, you have three types of tires and you have to use at least two of them during the race? What's a compound? No idea. That's crazy. Well, I'll tell you. The different compounds have different levels of performance and choosing when to use which compound is a key tactical decision to make. Different tires have different colors on their sidewalls. This allows spectators to understand the strategies. Under wet conditions, drivers may switch to the one of two specialized wet weather tires with additional grooves. One intermediate for mild wet conditions such as after a recent rain, one full wet for racing in or immediately after rain. Yeah, I'll go full wet, sir. Sir, I'll take full wet. A driver must make at least one stop to use two tire compounds. Up to three stops are typically made, although further stops may be necessary to fix damage or if weather conditions change. If rain tires are used, drivers are no longer obliged to use both types of Dry tires. Oh, because rain tires, I'm sure, are the slowest tires.
0: Right, right. And so it's like, what? And plus, when it's raining, they're not going to make you uh, put on the non-raining tires. If it's (laughs) 2008, make this just a little bit harder for you guys. If it's 2008,
1: they're like, get the dry tires on and put Vaseline on your wheel, baby. All right. Uh, drivers, every team in formula one must run two cars in every session in a Grand Prix weekend and every team may use up to four drivers in a season. A team may also run two additional drivers in free practice sessions, which are often used to test potential new drivers for a career as a formula one driver or gain experienced drivers, uh, to evaluate the car. Yo, I want to be a test driver. How do I become a test driver? Is it, yeah, is there a number I can call? What comes first, uh, practice, runs, or your super license? Because I feel like to get your super license, you got to try it out. You got to take a class or something.
0: Right, right. Yeah, I would love to meet the uh super license class instructor.
1: I was going to say, there's not even an extra seat in a Formula One car. So how do you have a driver's ed instructor in Formula One? It's
0: just... It's just the guy in the pit with the microphone. But that kind of shit that kind of shit, I mean, uh don't, don't those kids like get into it like when they're kids? Like that's a
1: very like rich. Yeah, they sport, start with like go karting and, and work their way up pretty quick. Right. They're driving adult cars before they have their regular driver's license, I'm sure. Ooh,
0: adult car is that similar to like adult films exactly. that I watch? I used to go uh, in an cars. adult car to watch adult <laughs> films. Have you ever been to the, one of those adult film, adult car, driving movie theaters. <laughs>
1: oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you drive up with the top down and your hood up. If you know what I'm yeah, saying. Hell yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: Always drive with your hood up. <laughs> That's why, Hey, uh, did, did, did F1 pique your interest at all? Isn't it very interesting?
1: I will. Uh, I, I'm curious to watch F1 now that I know a little bit about it. Um, I've been into all the F one movies. I'm into racing movies, so I think I didn't. Did enjoy you ever watch it. that
0: Stallone movie with the uh, F one?
1: Yes, with Heath Ledger. Was it no, I, not Heath Ledger. No, it was the guy no. from Remember the Titans, I believe. Yes,
0: correct. Was that blo- Blondie? Yeah, yeah, yeah Blondie uh, from Remember
1: yeah. the Titans. Not, yeah. not um, Ryan Gosling, the other Blondie, no. Sunshine. Yeah. Sunshine. Hey, that was the Overton window to Formula One. If you want to find out more about Formula One, Jason mentioned the Netflix documentary Drive to Survive. White Bones and I started watching it. It's pretty entertaining and it'll give you a really good feel for the sport. Speaking of White Bones, the love of my life, give a listen to our podcast, The Roamers Book Club, where we read and discuss adventure books. Music for the podcast is by Davey and the Chains and the song is titled Solid Gold Blues. Finally, I'll be traveling in Alaska for the next 10 days so Jason and I will be taking the next couple of weeks off from learning everything on the internet. In the meantime, please help us out by sharing the podcast with a friend. See you in two weeks. Bye.
0: Milky. Okay. And beans.